0: welcome to truth jihad audio visual i'm kevin barrett going all over the world looking for the most interesting folks who can call it the way they see it usually illuminating things that you're never going to understand if you pay attention to the corporate controlled mainstream media and of course i've been pushing back against the so-called war on terror for quite some time on this show and i've brought on all kinds of uh, wonderful people who've been defending the Muslims who've been unjustly accused of all sorts of things in the post 9-11 world. And right now, I've got uh, one of the best, uh, Clive Stafford Smith. He is a- an attorney who has been working with Guantanamo detainees. And before that, of course, he had a big uh, a-, a career in human rights law here in the United States, dealing with death penalty defendants, things like that and uh so he's, he's one of the, the leading uh advocates for the guantanamo detainees and indeed i believe represents quite a few of them um and maybe he can fill me in on more of that so hey welcome clive it's great to be with you
1: well thank you for that and the introduction i obviously you know paid you enough for such an amazing introduction there
0: <laughs> <laughs> right well uh yeah I'll, well you'll have to figure out a way to uh to send that um but <laughs> i think we should
1: tell your people we're only joking so yes I, probably I, should compromise I've, your journalists
0: you'd be surprised how i've been attacked over jokes a few times I wrote, I wrote a satirical article headlined i am a holocaust denier and they actually put that on a wikipedia page claiming that that meant i really was a holocaust denier nice. mm-hmm. so be careful uh about your titles uh so um, the 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 fake war on terror, of course, has led to a long list of outrages and one of them is still going with the uh, Guantanamo detainees still there. Maybe you could summarize your involvement with the Guantanamo issue.
1: Well, I brought the first case against Guantanamo back on February the 19th, 2002 with two of my colleagues, uh, which ended up in the US Supreme Court as Russell versus Bush, which thankfully we won. And it was because when I saw it, you know, having spent many, many years doing death penalty work in the Deep South, um, and when I saw that instead of locking people up in prisons that you couldn't get to, like parchment in Mississippi, giving them, you know, very little in terms of rights to prove that perhaps they were innocent and, you know, not giving them lawyers and so forth, instead we were putting all these Muslim guys in Cuba. And we were giving them no right to anything. They couldn't have lawyers. They couldn't have anyone have access to them. And you know, Donald Rumsfeld was saying they were the worst of the worst terrorists in the world. And I thought, surely all of my colleagues are going to agree, this is something we need to stop. But actually, it was very hard to find people because America was very raw after 9-11. And I suppose since I grew up in Britain, I was kind of used to countries invading each other. But I think the U.S. really isn't. And if you look at our history in the U.S., you can actually name the three dates on which we've been uh, territorially attacked. So people were very raw back then. And as a consequence, it was hard to figure out how to get allies to sue the Bush administration. But we did, and we sued them and um, fortunately won. And so thankfully, of the 780 prisoners in Gitmo, we got... All but 31 out, um, although nine died in the prison. Uh, and that's great, but we've still got work to do. I have just had a couple of my clients get out to Pakistan. I went down there and welcomed them home. And Ahmed Rabani met his 20-year-old son for the first time ever because his wife was pregnant when he was abducted. Uh, but we've still got um, more to, more work to do on that.
0: Yes, well, it's it's been quite a, an amazing uh, historical period with uh, this, you know, this this the persecution of Muslims in Guantanamo Bay, along with all sorts of other things, including the about eight hundred plus FBI setups and sting operations in which usually young, gullible Muslims were tricked into saying the wrong thing on a recording by usually a, a jailed con artist who is given a chance to get out if he. Pretended to convert to Islam and went to the nearest mosque and looked for vulnerable people. So yeah, the the whole Muslim community has has really been under under assault since then. And you know, I, I've on this uh, these Guantanamo issues in the past, I've interviewed uh, Moazam Beg. and oh, right, Moazam.
1: He was one of my first clients in Guantanamo. And yeah, maybe
0: talk, talk a little about give me touch- an update on him because I haven't had him on for ten years.
1: Oh well, Mazum, what a wonderful guy. He's he's just a delightful human being. And I met him for the first time in Guantanamo in November 2004. Um, and I'll never forget a story he told me, you know, back then, before they fitted cameras into every cell, um, they would actually have a, a cell with which was divided down the middle. And Mosin was on one side and they had this poor guard on the other side, just staring at the prisoner 24 hours a day. And one day, one of the guards who came in was this young African-American woman from uh, Alabama. And Mosem, you know, she was trembling. And Mosem was worried. He, Mosem is a very well-spoken, five-foot-three, very unthreatening-looking person. And and, and this woman seemed very afraid. So um, Mosem said, well, are you okay? And she, she didn't reply. And finally she did. and And she said to him, well, is it true? And Mosem said, Is what true? And she said, Is it true that you are Hannibal the Cannibal lecturer? And if I get too close to the metal fence, you'll bite my face off. And when Mosem finished laughing, you know, this poor woman had been told all of this nonsense to try to make sure that she wouldn't develop a human relationship with someone like him. Uh, But they became great friends. And, you know, he obviously convinced her that it was nothing of the sort. And after he got out, we got him out in early 2005. um, They became friends. And, you know, he continues to be in touch with her to this day. And I talked to him just yesterday because he has, since he got out, just been a great advocate for decency for other people. And he's never forgotten the people he left behind because he got out fairly early and so many people didn't. So he and I were just talking actually about what we're going to do um, in the the time upcoming, which will include going uh, in May together down to Pakistan where my latest clients who got out, we'd already organized an art show for them because Ahmed Rabani is a great artist. And one of the things I've been trying to do was to find something that he could do when he gets out. So, he, we're having this show of his artwork, which we did get out of Guantanamo, uh, along with the artwork of um, well, Pakistani artists who have been inspired by what happened to him, which was really pretty dreadful. And so, you know, we'll be down there, and Mosem will be there. And and you know, I consider him a friend, he's a very decent human being.
0: That's that's wonderful, yeah. Glad to hear that. Um, and Pakistan is actually in kind of an interesting situation right now, of course, with mm-hmm. uh, Imran Khan uh, being persecuted uh, <laughs> and uh, posing a threat to the regime that's been running Pakistan for so long. So uh, it's a kind of an interesting time to be going to Pakistan.
1: Well, I just came back from there. I have, I've long since uh, been a friend with Imran, who is someone who I do respect a lot. You know, we don't have to agree on everything to respect other people. And I think he's a very decent human being. And he's also the, you know, the only Pakistani um, prime minister for a while who's absolutely not corrupt. And so I very much hope that the democratic will will not be overridden by the ISI and the military. And I I think it will be. I think he'll be he'll be all right. Let's hope so.
0: Okay. yeah, we're, we're praying for him. Uh, and, and how, how about uh, Dr. Afia Siddiqui? Uh, her case, of course, is one of the most outrageous abuses of this whole sorry historical episode, and uh, we're still trying to get her free. She's apparently in in Texas, uh, still locked up. Um, and you've had some involvement with that case as well, right?
1: Well, I have. So, I've sort of taken it on now. Um, look, it's, they do keep us busy with all of this stuff. But I had been contacted some time back. By uh, Falsia, who, who's her? Who's also a doctor? She's a neurologist. And Falsia had asked me if I could try to help Afia. So I was in Guantanamo in January, and then I had to go to Texas for a death penalty case. And so I said, "Look, I'll stop in and see Afia while I'm there." And you know, I got a legal visit to go see her. She's in FMC Carswell, which is a supposedly a federal medical center, but it's really just a maximum security prison. And, ah, uh, you know, it just tears, you, tears at your heart to see this. Afia, of all the people who have gone through the Rendition to Torture program, is perhaps, uh, she's really the most notorious woman. There haven't been many women involved. And she went through it all. She was disappeared for five years by the U.S. and the Pakistanis. Where she was taken to the background. And one of the tragic stories of that is that she had with her her three children at the time one who was an infant, one Mariam who was two or three years old, and one Ahmed who was five or six years old. And uh, the infant died, you know, was dropped on the ground, I think, accidentally, and, you know, when they seized her. The daughter, Mariam, was taken off and forcibly adopted into a, an American family for five years. Uh, and Ahmed, the the, the son, was, was part of the abuse that, Af, uh, that Afia went through. And I, I saw both of the kids who are still with us when I was in Karachi about three weeks ago. Um, and you know what these poor children have been through. But then in the meantime, Afia has been through still more, not only having her children snatched from her, but then being tortured in horrendous ways and then shot twice uh, and then put through this farce of a trial in the Southern District of New York. And now she's facing 86 years in prison for allegedly assaulting uh, a federal officer. But in fact, it was the other way around, as far as I can see. And well, obviously, I've got to do the investigation before i say anything categorical but it certainly seems highly improbable that what the government said happened was true um and but the, the overriding thing is this poor woman needs to be at home and um with her sister and you know needs to be getting treatment for the horrendous traumas that she's been through
0: that's true yeah it's it's just heartbreaking and of course in pakistan her case is very well known and it's one of the many reasons that Uh, ordinary Pakistanis uh tend not to look too favorably on the U.S. and and why they support Imran Khan in his uh, essentially trying to be an honest broker rather than just being a servant of the U.S. empire while some of the military people in Pakistan apparently are willing to keep sort of taking the money and taking the orders
1: well I should say this I mean first you're right that this is the great discord between the US and Pakistan. If you're in Pakistan, Afia Siddiqui is a legend. You will have a hard time finding a single human being in Pakistan who's not heard of her and who is not hugely supportive of her. Her sister organized a million-person rally in Islamabad uh, a few years back. But in America, you'd be incredibly hard-pressed to find someone on the street who's ever heard of her. And so, you know, you've got this incredible um, tension between the two countries that actually the U.S. is generally oblivious of. Now, And in terms of what we need to do about it, you know, I've talked to Imran about this. Imran's not anti-American at all. You know, they they act like he is, but he really isn't. I mean, he's the most westernized um, of all the prime ministers we've had. I mean, he was at Oxford University, for goodness sake. He was married to Jemima Khan, who's an old friend of mine. Uh, So it's ridiculous to say he's anti-American. But on the other hand, he will stand up for the rights of Pakistanis. And he was a strong supporter of my Guantanamo clients to get them home. And he's a strong supporter of Afia. But then so are all the other politicians. Again, you won't find a Pakistani politician who doesn't support him. The people who are stopping it happening, in my view, are a very small group of people in the ISI and the military who are very worried that if she comes home, their complicity in what happened to her is going to come to light. And of course, we know they were complicit. And uh, yet one of the jobs I think I have to do, I'm going to go down to Pakistan again in May, is to talk to those people and say, look, we're not interested in rubbishing you people. Uh, and frankly, poor old Afia couldn't do it now. She is so traumatized that she, she has no more business doing a press conference than she does being in uh, in prison. She just needs to be in in hospital. And so we need to convince the people who are preventing some compassion being shown to her uh, to, to change their tune. And I hope we can do that. I mean, that's what it's always been with the Guantanamo guys is, just getting the home countries to behave themselves and then the U.S. to let the person go, and I hope we'll be able to do that
0: in inshallah. So, how how about the the larger context today? It seems that the you know, this psychotic episode of the so-called war on terror, it, rather than sort of ebbing and giving way to some form of relative normalcy, instead we're sort of falling headlong into a world war three scenario with more uh, madness uh, in russia being attacked through ukraine um tensions with china dialed up I, I i don't know whether you're aware of the case that covid probably came from a u.s bio attack on china but there is one and it's a very strong case so
1: given this this well i'm, I'm not sure i'd agree with that but And I'm not sure I'd agree with having spent a lot of time working on Ukraine. Um, I certainly don't think the Russians are, um, are innocent of anything there. I think Putin is, is another deranged power in a hungry madman. But that's not to say there aren't two sides to it. I mean, we should have approached Russia very differently in the past. But on the other hand, Russia had no business invading Ukraine, and what's happened to the people there is just a tragedy.
0: Don't don't you think that the U.S. invaded and essentially occupied Ukraine in 2014 and weaponized the extremists, extreme nationalists? I really really don't
1: with that no there's I mean, all... obviously
0: been a civil war since then between the nearly 50 percent of ukrainians who are ethnically russian the vast majority of, of whom they've either been exiled or killed or subjugated into you know into intimidated yeah, there, and there, are com-
1: there are complicated aspects of all of that and then there aren't that many countries in the world that are only 30 years old and well of course there's an ancient history to ukraine but only recognized for the last 30 years so there, there, there's lots going on there. But no, I don't think for one second that that's something that the US provoked, yeah, other than by making some pretty unwise decisions vis-a-vis um, Russia. Because we definitely need to dial down all of our uh, all of our hostilities around the world. You know, it, it's generally mad people who think that wars can solve any problem. There are very few problems that are solved by war.
0: Yes, i I would agree with that but wouldn't you agree though that the the wolfowitz doctrine which essentially was a very extremist uh, uh doctrine arguing that the u.s should do whatever it takes to prevent the rise of even a regional hegemon anywhere else in the world in order to maintain and extend a unilateral u.s empire gave rise to this whole series of events that we've seen uh which I mean, I would cast as a war on Islam by way of the false flag on September 11, 2001, now morphing into a war wars on Russia and China as well, of course. No, the-
1: yeah, I I wouldn't agree with that. I think Wolfowitz was a that case. I'll, I'll go along with you on that. But it's almost every government when you look around the world. Almost every government plays the hate card and the fear card. And, um, you know, we see it all around us. So, you know, the British are behaving incredibly badly at the moment in terms of pretending that asylum seekers are somehow evil people. Um, and you're seeing a rise of right-wing nationalism in all sorts of countries. And that's incredibly sad. And perhaps the the best solution to that is for those of us who don't agree that we should hate black people and blame them for all the crime in America or we should hate Muslims and blame them for everything that's going on in the world that we should hate whomever. I mean, all of that's just incredibly sad and pathetic. And, um, you know, my mother right now is probably going to uh, pass away in the next couple of days. And I always think about her advice to me, which is that uh, our job is to get in between the people doing all this hatred and the people doing the hating, and you know that's that's my guiding principle, and and I think we see it all around the world, and we need to get away from hatred, and we need to start talking a bit more positively about uh, what we can do for our fellow human beings.
0: Well, that, that sounds good to me, uh, and and in terms of the U.S. domestic pol- uh, political scene, with uh, Trump about to be indicted and so on, uh, do you do you see hope for uh, uh, somehow a, a change in 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 the U.S. that would bring back the constitutional rights that we had before September 11, 2001, and that would dial down these kinds of tensions and hatreds that seem to be tearing the country apart?
1: I, it's hard. I don't see, because look, your problem in the U.S., which is not unique to the U.S., is that um, Trump is someone who deals in hatred. DeSantis is someone who deals solely in hatred. Uh, and you're not looking at a great alternative. Uh, you know, Biden, you got to vote for someone. um I suppose you might vote for him, but let's face it, he is not pushing an agenda that would <laughs> well, you may not. but um but on the other hand, I'd certainly put him above the Trump and dissenters. but on the other hand, you don't have uh, any party in the United States with any realistic. Uh, power or or potential of power. And it's certainly not the Democrats who have a consistent view where we're going to treat our fellow human beings fairly. So, you know, it's tough. I think America is caught in a vortex of, uh, of parties that don't offer true hope to the American people or any optimism. They don't, they've forgotten how to dream. And that's a great shame.
0: I agree. Uh, And do you think the emerging multipolar world uh, assuming that the U.S. will be essentially defeated or at least fought to a draw in Ukraine and likewise eventually defeated in in China uh, in the South China Sea. So as this emerging multipolar world emerges, do you, do you see that as being uh, offering more hope or, or actually less, given that the rest of the world doesn't seem to really be any more committed to human rights than the U.S. is?
1: Well, I think this is a problem. It's one of the, the big mistakes that we as Americans have made, which is to, to, to spurn human rights. Uh, there is, as we speak, of all the conventions on human rights, there's the grand total of zero that the US has signed up to that's actually enforceable against the United States. And we do that just because we don't want international bodies to have power over us. But it's a massive mistake in the long term. Because when you see the indictment of Putin for war crimes at the ICC, which I've got nothing against, I think that the Russians have committed war crimes, but I think so have a lot of other people. And one of the issues that we've been dealing with for many years has been whether those rules should apply to the US, against the US, against Americans, which of course they should. But they don't. And so our problem as China uh, gets more powerful is going to be that inevitably, like every other country, the the US government is going to become weaker. The British used to think they ruled the whole planet. Well, they don't do that anymore. And these things, just the decline and fall of every nation is inevitable. Um, what we should be doing if we want to... Uh, have a future ourselves is supporting human rights and decency now while we've got the power. Um, because otherwise, it's going to come back and bite us when the Chinese have the power or whomever. So I don't see that the future at the moment is terribly bright on that score, but you just can't give up hope. You know, I, I spend my time now trying to inspire a group of young people to pick up that mantle. Partly, obviously, Kevin, so I can become an international cricket star, which I might have left a bit late in my career, but um, this, you know, mainly because we need these young people to 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 fight those battles in the future, uh, because they are genuinely our hope.
0: Can you give us a few more specifics about that? How you're engaging with young people? Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah. Oh, look, one of the projects I have is called Generation on Trial, where we take people from yours and my generation who have basically screwed up the world and we put them on trial. Um, and we do it on television. I love and it. The, reason, <laughs> the Boomer's on is, trial. Well, so so far we've been put on we put like a British MP for benefiting from the proceeds of slavery. We put in a Nigel Farage for Brexit, we put Nick Clegg on trial as the deputy prime minister for student loans, and all the different, you know, obviously, uh, Tony Blair for the Iraq war. Yeah, I, I put also, him number one. Well, there are lots of people, I think one might have Donald Trump way up there too. Right, Sorry about the uh, UK, yeah. The the point about this is to teach people how different the world can be and how um, our generation has pulled the wool over the eyes of young people. I mean, a good example is this: when you think about how um, people now seem to think that the entire world is going to collapse if you have higher taxes, you know, that's just madness. Of course, you should have higher taxes on rich people. That's the way it used to be. and. If you look back at 1952, when Eisenhower was the Republican president of the United States, do you know what the marginal rate of income tax was? It was
0: up close to like 80, 90 percent, wasn't it?
1: It was 92 percent for people in 1951, for people making over $150,000. And now, you know, that was the height of capitalism. And America got by perfectly fine with high taxes. But unfortunately, there are you know the neocon you know, people who, the economists, uh, have, are sort of winning the battle at the moment on saying you can't tax the very rich to pay for the needs of the poor. And we need to educate the young people that actually that's, I think the legal term is total bullshit, and you can definitely tax the very rich. But there are many other things. I mean, climate change is is another good one uh, in terms of how the richest person in Britain, a guy called Jim Ratcliffe, has made all of his billions of pounds off um, off destroying the environment. And he should be taxed into the next millennium. And so as to have whatever funds we need to try to help the countries that are really suffering from this. And there are many, many examples of that. But then there are lots of other things. You know, I just want to train young people to be advocates for human rights and decency um, by having them work on cases like AFIA's. I've got lots of young people working on AFIA's case, which is yeah. great. And then they do all the hard work, Kevin, and I get to take the credit, which is typical. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry.
0: Well, hey, if you have any young lawyers watching this, maybe they can contact you and uh, and sign on to help with yeah, that.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. I hope they can. i love it. Excellent.
0: Okay. Well, uh, that, that's a, a pretty good uh, lineup of topics for a half hour. Okay. I'd say we agreed on probably 85% of them. Um, I'm not a huge enthusiast of trying to prosecute Putin in the ICC when we're not prosecuting Biden and, and Zelensky and everybody else too. But uh, that's uh, something we can argue about another time because we're pretty much at the end of our half hour so thank you, Clive Stafford-Smith. I okay. really uh, love your work. I appreciate what you've been doing during this crazy 20-odd years of war on Islam uh, for whatever purpose it served. Well, I don't we know.
1: call it the war of terror, not the war on terror. That's what the comedian Borat calls it, and I think that's entirely Yeah, Yeah, no, Borat was right about that.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, uh, Clive Stafford-Smith. Keep up the great work. God bless, and hope to Thanks. talk again. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.